That was a, a perfect song. Thank you, Parker. Thank you, Justin, and everyone else. We're going to be, we, we're in Luke 12 this morning. We're going to be in Luke 13 this evening. This morning, we talked about what it means to have an eternal perspective, to have a heart of service and action. And now, this evening, we're going to talk about what it means to exert every effort for the kingdom. This chapter really breaks down what it means and, and the, really the life of a disciple of Christ. He opens up, he talks about, Jesus talks about repentance, he talks about what the kingdom of God looks like, and then he tells us, now strive, exert every effort for the kingdom. And he begins this way in verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? And again, he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. An eye for an eye, a measure for a measure. That was the standard then at that time. If something happened to you, then you must have sinned to deserve that punishment or that whatever happened to you, that death, that pain. I love that Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no. And I love that that's the God that we serve. It's very consistent with the God that we serve. Jesus reminds everyone here that, look, life, it's not forever. And he points out simple, just simply two accidents or one intentional incident where Pilate has these people killed and then another that seems to be just an accident. And he points these out and points to them, look, this place, it's not safe. This world is fallen. It's broken. We can see that there's no peace here in Judah at this time. And so Jesus reminds them that, look, this life is not forever. Yet at the same time, Jesus gives them a very comforting thought to repent. I know often we don't think of repentance as comforting, but it is. It's very comforting. We think of repentance, and what we think of is just turning, and then it's turning away from sin. And in a basic understanding, yes, that is repentance. But we have to understand. We have to understand that We cannot save ourselves by our own actions and our own righteousness. It's God that saves. And so repentance isn't just turning away from our sin. It is running into the saving arms of our God. Jesus is starting off this chapter by saying to them that there there is something worse than any tragedy, any accident, any death, anything that you might experience, any pain or suffering. And that is eternity without God. And when you look at it that way, repentance is the opposite of death. It's choosing life. Repentance is that narrow door we're going to talk about, that lead that we need to run through that leads to life. Repentance isn't just an apology, isn't just, okay, hey, I'm sorry. Repentance is more than that. I think that's what Jesus is trying to point out here in the next story. We read on in Luke 13, look at verses 6 through 9. Because this chapter is a little shorter, we're going to start at the top and go all the way down to the end of the chapter. So starting verse 6, and he told this parable. 
a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and I put on manure or fertilizer and then it should bear fruit next year. Well and good. But if not, if not, you can cut it down. We read that and we realize repentance is more than just just words. Repentance, that is our life with God, has to be more than just words. It has to be action. Repentance is an action, and God is expecting us. If we're going to have true repentance, then what needs to come is fruit. We need to bear fruit, unlike this tree in this parable. Otherwise, we're just using up nutrients, we're taking up space, and that's what this man says later in verse 7. He says, why should this tree just use up the ground? And I know we talked in the previous chapter in Luke 12 that we don't know when God might demand from us our life, and yet he's given us this very precious life. And if we do nothing with it, what a waste. We do nothing meaningful. We've wasted God's gift. And yet God is so patient with us. He's so generous, and we can forget that sometimes. We read this parable, and even though this tree it started off, you think about that, it started off as a seed and it has grown to be a full tree, a mature tree, and yet it still produces nothing. It produces no fruit. And what does God do? God says, look, this man here, he says, I'll dig around it and I'll put in fertilizer. I'm going to go the extra mile to give it everything it needs to bear fruit. And that's what God does for us today. He gives us everything we need and more to be spiritually successful in this life. Don't waste it and just take up space. What good is that in God's kingdom if we're just using the ground and we're taking up space? Use it. And this seems to be the point in the next story as he shows by example, look, this is how generous God is. And not just at specific times, but at all times in verses 10 through 12, this is what happens. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called over to her. Notice that, that he calls her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. This is a physical problem describing really a spiritual truth. Pain stinks. Sin stinks. It hurts. And it's often a burden that we bear with guilt and with shame. As many of you know, I mean, that's why Jesus is here. And he says to her, look, your disability, you're freed from your disability. These have to be, they have to be comforting words of this woman who has experienced pain for 18 long years. And to hear these words, finally, she has to be relieved. We need to realize that in our own lives as Jesus heals us and frees us from our sins. And when he washes away our sins, we should see that, look, we are freed from our sin. 
And now what do we do? We bear fruit. We grow. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she what? She glorified God. Do we glorify God? Do we praise God in our new life and our relationship with him? Many of us might think, yeah, of course, of course I praise God. That's why I'm here. I'm here praising and glorifying God. But did we think about glorifying God when we woke up? When we woke up yesterday morning? Are we going to think about it tomorrow as we go about our day? How can I glorify God? Am I glorifying God because of all that he's done for me? Because he's freed me from sin? If we're not careful, we can take God's saving power for granted. And this evening is just that. This lesson this evening is just that, a reminder not to take for granted God's blessings and the wonderful kingdom that we are all a part of as his people. The blessings that we receive in having a relationship with him. And yet these religious leaders, they often take that for granted, being God's chosen people. Look at how this person, this religious leader in the synagogue, how he reacts to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing something good in verses 14 through 17. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, but there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come and on those days and be healed. And on the Sabbath, not on the Sabbath day, on those days. And the Lord says, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to the water. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bound on the Sabbath day? Remember, God created the Sabbath for rest. And this person, this woman who's been suffering, she needs rest. And verse 17, it continues. And he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. These religious leaders here in verse 14, this leader, he thinks he's doing something good. He's like, I'm making a good compromise here. You want to heal? That's fine. Do it on these six days. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Don't do it on that day. But that's not good enough for God. If they can selfishly take their animals that are beneficial to them and provide welfare to their life and water their animals What more? Why can't God go and heal his people and take care of his people who are suffering on the Sabbath? You hypocrites, he says. What Jesus does is amazing. I love the reaction of the people here. In verse 17, it's almost like when these people are put to shame, the others rejoice. It's like they knew that there was something sus about this leader. They knew that there was was a problem here, and they rejoice in all that Jesus had done. Again, it's just another reason why we praise God for all the wonderful things that he's done in our life. And that's the theme that we see throughout this chapter is Jesus saying and doing wonderful things. Showing us why we're blessed. And so as we go through just the transformation of a disciple, we see repentance, we see freedom, we see growth. And now he says, look, this is what the kingdom, that's what it's like in verses 18 uh, 18 through 19. We read, and he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? 
And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. This is one of my favorite parts of this chapter, because it gives such a positive outlook on God's kingdom. Notice that God's kingdom, it starts off small, just a small mustard seed, but with the power of God. It starts off small, but when it grows, it grows to inhabit all of the birds in the air there. It's a habitat for life, and that is what the church should be, a place for life, a habitat for life where you can go and build your nest and your home because so many of us, we fly around aimlessly looking for a place, looking for life, looking for a destination, and what we need to realize is Jesus planted one. He planted a tree, a destination for all believers to go to, to grow, and to mature, where we can build a home. It's a great blessing. We praise God for that. It's a beautiful image of God's kingdom, of his church, and we can take it for granted. We praise God that we have a home amongst brothers and amongst sisters following our Savior, Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to give another comparison in verses 20 through 21. Jesus compares the kingdom to leaven. You realize a few chapters before, he compared the Pharisees' sin and their hypocrisy to leaven. And so I love that he does this. You might find it weird, but it's like he takes that analogy and he redeems it and says, look, the kingdom of God is also like this. He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. A leaven that a woman took and, and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven, until it rises. We see that comparison. What we're comparing here in this analogy is like this is God's kingdom, and these are the kingdoms of the world. This is God, and this is sin. And in the manner of growth, they're actually very similar. And the fact that they both grow. They grow within our life, and they start off very small. But there's a key difference here. One leads to life, and one leads to death. One is nutritious and one is poisonous. Which one are we going to choose? Which home are we going to choose? Like these religious leaders here, we can think that, okay, just we're being a part of the kingdom, but in reality, what we're doing in our everyday lives is we're practicing lawlessness. In reality, we're like the leaven, the, the sin of the Pharisees, we're hypocrites. And that's a mistake. What we should do is we should desire, as Jesus says in Luke 13, 22-24. Notice that he went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. Look at that. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. This is very similar to what we see when Jesus talks and gives his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He says, look, enter through the narrow way. Take the narrow way. But Luke here allows us to think a little differently from this passage. 
we read that and we can wonder, okay, but they're seeking. I mean, we had a lesson not too long ago about seeking. If they seek, they will find. I thought that that was a good thing. Shouldn't we be seeking the kingdom? But when we read those verses, we realize there's a sense of urgency there that we might not have. We're seeking with no real urgency. I'll seek, but I'll get there when I get there. It'll be all right. Kind of like this morning, just, you know, last minute, the very last thing we do. But we read this passage, and what we need to do is we need to tie two words together to create an accurate picture of what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 23. That word is strive, right? To strive and to seek. They need to come together. If we are going to enter through this narrow door, they need to come together in perfect harmony. So read verse 24 with that mindset. Verse 24 would then say, like those who strive, other versions might say, exert every effort. I like that better. will enter through the narrow door. But those who seek and don't, don't strive, don't exert every enter, they're not going to be able to. And it's not like they don't have a choice, verse 24. They're able. So it's if, are we willing? You see, there's a problem in American Christianity today called spiritual gluttony, where I'm going to take all the spiritual practices I'm going to do all the traditional things, all the things that make me happy and I can use to benefit myself in this world and that make me feel good and for my pleasure. I'm going to take all those in, but I'm not going to grow. And I'm not going to grow in my relationship with God. And this makes sense when you look at the context of Jesus' ministry and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they're part of a, a religious heritage. They're practicing their faith. But they're making the mistake of spiritual gluttony. I don't want us to read these scriptures today in Luke 13 and think, hey, I'm here on a Sunday night when it's snowy. These verses don't apply to me. That's a mistake that we can make. These verses apply to everyone. We need to take a step back and individually assess, am I exerting effort every day to strive to make it through that narrow day, that narrow door to draw closer to God every single day? To step back and ask, as the lesson is all about, how is my relationship with God? Where am I at? And he says in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen, Shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and then knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will say, and he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You know, I was at the airport this week, and I saw everyone's worst nightmare when you're at the airport. Someone just booking it, trying to get to their gate, and I could see that their gate was closed. And as, as you guys know, if you've traveled enough, if that gate is closed, that gate is, that door is not opening. And that stinks, right? We don't want to do that. He was late and he didn't make it. We read these verses and we can apply that idea. I think, I think in many ways it can be applied, but Actually, if we look at the details in verse 25, it's even worse. 
for those people outside that door. You notice a little detail there in verse 25 when the master goes and shuts that door. What do they do? They just begin to stand outside. They stand. Like, like, so they knew. They were just sitting outside God's house. They knew where the door was. They were looking at that narrow door, but they chose not to go through it. We might read this analogy here and think that God is just so cruel, but when you look at it with those little details, you realize they had every opportunity. They just chose to sit on their hands. They chose to be preoccupied with whatever was outside. The call is don't be distracted and think, look, I'm good. If we haven't walked through that narrow door, we walk through it today if we haven't. We draw closer to Jesus today. But if we don't, Jesus says in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. But then he gives some comfort in verse 29. He says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The call this evening is to exert every effort and to strive for Jesus and his kingdom. A place where one day there will be no more weeping, and after this life there will be no, there's no gnashing of teeth, and because of God's grace, the last will be first. As we close this chapter off, look at verses 31 through 33. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. A detail I don't want you to miss is the Pharisees that are mentioned here. All the time we talk about the Pharisees as being the antagonists, the bad guys in Jesus' ministry. And for many times they are. But there is actually, in verse 31, Pharisees with good intentions that don't want to see Jesus die. It's saying, don't go that way. Herod is trying to kill you. And yet, even with all their knowledge, they misunderstand Jesus' mission. And this just goes to show, at the end of this chapter, who are we exerting effort for? For what God are we striving? And that's when Jesus shows his character and his care for his people. And he says in verses 34 through 35, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills and the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. We're striving for God a God that loves us so much, 
who wants to see us repent if we haven't already, to enter into his kingdom, to make a home in his kingdom, to strive for him. He wants to gather up his people, the people, and to comfort them just like a hen comforts and gathers up her chicks, like a mother comforts her children. And yet the pain that Jesus is experiencing is is some of the worst pain someone can experience. Where the child wants love of his or her mother. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want you to look at your life. Take a step back, look at your life, and replace the word Jerusalem with your name. And ask, does it fit? I hope that it doesn't fit. I hope that it doesn't. But if it does, then you know what to do. You know that you, there's a God out there that loves you, that wants you. you know, when King David lost his son Absalom, he repeated Absalom's name twice. And we read that in 2 Samuel 18.33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chambers over the gate and wept. And he went and he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, what I had died instead of you, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And David goes on to say, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What we see from Jesus in Luke 13 is this, this statement. This is the gravity of Jesus' statement in Luke 13. This is how he feels for each of us. And Jeremiah later says something similar in Jeremiah 22, verse 29. Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. I just want you to hear the word of the Lord. And throughout the scriptures, we see the same call. It's a call. An angel crying, Abraham, Abraham, to stop him from plunging a knife into his son. Genesis 22, 11. Moses, Moses, God introducing himself to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 4. Martha, Martha, I want you to listen. That was just a few chapters ago, Luke 10, 41. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Repent. Acts 9, verse 4. If you can fill in your name, Where Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Don't ignore the care and the concern that God has for you. Repent. Strive. Be baptized today. Have him wash away your sins. Start anew. And work earnestly every day for his kingdom. That's what you want this evening. That's the life that you want. Then come forward now while we stand and we sing.